Hello, and welcome to So Curious, presented by the Franklin Institute. In this season, Human 2.0, we will be talking to scientists and non-scientists about technology, innovation, and the human experience. We're your hosts. I'm Angelica Pasquini. And I am the Bull Bay, but you could just call me Bay. In today's episode, we're going to be talking to ethicist Anna Wexler and the chief bioscientist of the Franklin Institute, Dr. Jayatri Das. Okay, so we're going to be talking about what's right and wrong and the decisions that people are making around the brain. Yeah, I think that this introduces the question of like right and wrong in science and in medicine. Um, right and wrong, obviously, it's not something that anyone can get get along on or get on the same page with since the beginning of time. So um, that, that's not anything new. But I think that, um, okay, your idea of what is being alive might not be mine. And that's when we get into neuroethics as far as end of life care. Right, right. Um, and yeah. what does it mean to be alive kind of brings up the question, like, well, what, what does it mean to be human? Exactly. And to function in full capacity as a human being. Right. And, and what one one person's idea of full capacity is versus another's. Right. Who's deciding? Who's yeah. there? I mean, what's your definition? Do you have a definition? Like, what's the a complete definition of what it means to be a human being? <laughs> <laughs> um, let me think. All right. Being a human being to me means uh, being. Hu- okay. Being human. But I love that word being is in there. Right. Presence. I would say that it really, to me, it probably um, dwindles down to that moment of like, is the brain functioning at all? Yeah. Those, those moments you? have to be really, really tough. Right. And I'd imagine you're basing that decision off of responses. Right. Because, I mean, maybe you can't speak, but you can blink. Yeah. Maybe you can squeeze your hands or, yeah. or those different things. Like, you know, I, I would use those as measurements, but it, it is very difficult to tell in those really kind of more nuanced moments of there's not necessarily mobile indicators yeah. of, of brain activity. Um, and I am not a neural scientist. So yeah. I can't call it. But I certainly have a lot of questions and I definitely want to find out more. You know, being a human is, is such a interesting question to inquire about like what does it mean to be human and yeah to, to fully function as one our first guest is anna wexler Anna Wexler studies the ethics, legal, and social issues surrounding emerging technologies as the principal investigator of the Wexler Lab. She earned her PhD from MIT, where her dissertation centered on the DIY brain stimulation movement. Welcome, Dr. Wexler. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Would you like to just introduce yourself and a little bit about what you do? Sure. Uh, My name is Anna Wexler. I'm an assistant professor of medical ethics and health policy at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, And I study ethical, legal, and social implications of emerging technologies with a specific focus on neurotechnology. So your research interests include, I'm going to list them off, DIY medicine, citizen science, direct-to-consumer health products, online patient communities, neuroscience technologies, and alternative neurotherapies. I'm so interested in this, and I'm curious (laughs) if you could tell us more about these terms. I should say that, so I initially started, I've I've always been fascinated by the brain and brain science. Um, And I, I initially thought I wanted to be like a bench scientist and doing neuroscience in the lab. But then I decided it wasn't for me. I was really interested in these really larger questions about what it means to understand the brain and 
what the impact of neurotechnologies um, would be on society. So I got into science communication. I actually started writing about neuroscience and the brain. And from there, I decided I didn't want to write about other people's stuff. I wanted to actually do some of my own work. Um, and I was really fascinated by brain-computer interfaces, which is how you can communicate. You basically, like, you know, machines and um, brains and humans can communicate together. So I did a PhD studying some of the social implications of neurotechnologies. And uh, while I was doing that, I, I heard about this phenomenon called do-it-yourself brain stimulation. Um, so that's one of the first terms. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it is. And I'm so interested in what that means. So DIY, do-it-yourself brain stimulation. So, so there was a movement that arose of people who had begun to basically mimic what scientists were doing. So in the lab, scientists were using brain stimulation, so basically electrical stimulation. Scientists were starting to experiment with this, and then people started reading about it. Non-scientists started reading about it and started building these devices at home and stimulating their own brains with these low levels of electricity. And so that movement came to be known as uh, do-it-yourself brain stimulation. Wow. Would you consider them scientists in a way, respectfully or no? That's a very interesting question. Mm -hmm. When scientists, real, I mean, I don't want to say real scientists. <laughs> right. Right. So it when, begs the question. When yeah. professional scientists, those mm -hmm. working at institutions and who refer to themselves as scientists, I'll right, say it like that, right, right, right? Started hearing about this movement. They thought, Nah, like these people aren't, you know, these people are really stupid. They, they're really reckless. They shouldn't be doing what they're doing. And in my work actually interviewing these people, I found that they were actually really smart and very well informed for the most part. So I don't know if I'd call them scientists, but but they are they are a lot smarter than I think they've been given credit for. Right. right. And right. the intention behind this movement, is it for people to feel better? Partially. So people use it for different things. So some people were doing it for enhancement. So, and specifically for cognitive enhancement, so to try and improve their memory, their cognition, their learning abilities. Other people were doing it to try and self-treat various disorders and diseases like depression or anxiety. And is this citizen science as well? The DIY, like what's the difference between those two things? Another very interesting question. So, you know, there is no single definition of what is do-it-yourself medicine or what is citizen science. So my answer is going to be based on how I think people use the terms, right? So in citizen science, it's often people coming together for some sort of general research purposes, right? So they want to contribute to overall knowledge, mm. not just do something for themselves and have it, that information just stay personal. Right. So with DIY brain stimulation, it was actually, that was a personal thing. People were doing it almost like you'd quietly take a medicine and not necessarily share it with people mm. uh, or try and do something to maybe enhance yourself. But you wouldn't be doing it to try and create some knowledge. Whereas citizen science is more about everyone contributing to this sort of data to a whole <laughs> to, to create knowledge. I appreciate that answer. Like one is literally the individual and the other one has a more communal element to it. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to ask you this. We know there are ethics, there's laws, and there's psychology involved in your work. But can you give us just like a synthesis of what it means to work at the crossroads of these complex science areas? You know, when you think about new technologies and how new technologies will change society, they don't change society in one single way, right? So they may present questions related to ethics, right? So maybe these things are covered by law, but a little ethically questionable or- A little gray. Or, a little gray, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in some cases, they challenge laws, right? Or maybe a better way of putting that is that new technologies often challenge existing laws and don't quite fit into existing legal frameworks, right? And new technologies also 
you know, change society in ways, right? These broader ways, the way we think, the way we act, that may not be a legal question and it may not be an ethical question, but and even just something as simple as the iPhone, right? That's really just dramatically changed like everything about our yeah. <laughs> society, right? So the way I think about this, right, is that you can have, so I'm interested in the technologies and then sort of what is their impact on these areas of ethics, these areas of law, these areas of society, um, and yeah. how can we think about those and understand them? I, I I think about this all the time because it's kind of something that you deal with after the fact. Like yeah. it shows up, it's doing its thing, we all start to notice, and then the questions all arise. Is that classically how this happens or are there situations where there's new developments and these questions are actually being asked before to sort of save us from later having to deal with implications? So that's actually really debated in the field, right? It's actually called anticipatory ethics, right? Can we start at the beginning before these technologies make their way into the world and can we ask those questions? But sometimes the problem there is, right? Sometimes it's too early. So people are asking those questions in advance and they're asking them now and they're asking them specifically about neurotechnology and other biotechnologies, right? But can you really ask those questions in advance or is ultimately some of this stuff just unpredictable and you have to wait till it happens to then react? Mm. I'm really curious about alternative neurotherapies. Do you have any poignant examples of cases where ethics and medical technology might have gotten fuzzy in the hands of the people? Yeah. So it's something I write about is when people are using a certain therapy that's validated and used in the clinic, like transcranial magnetic stimulation. You know, there's some people who use TMS and then, you know, TMS has been shown to work for a number of indications. But then what happens when people start marketing it for things that it hasn't been shown to work for? So maybe enhancement, for example, mm. or some other clinical indications that there, there really isn't good evidence, right? Um, you get into this space of alternative medicine and people trying to market things or sell things or promote things to patients where there isn't quite the evidence that's there at the moment. And another thing that they might do is they also, some people sort of modify the technology a little bit so they don't give the sort of validated known stimulation parameters for TMS, but they'll start modifying the stimulation a little bit, giving it differently. And so you start to get into this space where you started with this like, technology that was approved for one thing and that we know there's some evidence for it, but maybe it starts to be marketed for something else and it's, the technology itself gets changed. And you get into this really interesting ethical and legal space where, you know, at what point is this new thing and this new promotion of it, you know, ethically questionable and legally questionable and different from the well-validated yeah. uh, techniques? Who, who says what's right? How does that inform our laws? Do you think our laws as they stand today, I don't know, are sound and have a good relationship with science? So on the whole, yes, right? But there's these certain gray areas where, you know, there are these challenges and this is one of those gray areas. And specifically with physicians. So physicians have a lot of leeway to basically do what they want. <laughs> you know, not not completely, but you know, if they want to promote a certain technique for a certain indication or make slight modifications to something that's already been approved, they can do that. The FDA, Food and Drug Administration, they regulate the companies that sell drugs and the companies that sell devices. They don't regulate what physicians do. So physicians have a lot of leeway, right? And, and so under the law, it's okay. But sometimes these things get a little bit ethically tricky and complicated. And that's where the gray zone sort of comes in. I think it's with regards to the ethics. Like, is it ethically okay to sell something to a patient or promote something to a patient when there's not a lot of evidence for it? So is that one way we would know? I had a question of how, how do we know if something is a scam? 
in DIY medicine? It's hard to know, mm. which is an ethics question, right? Yeah. So, so who's, who's responsible for putting out the information that might be scamming you or might be misleading or right and who's responsible for doing their homework right so if you're somebody who's selling this some of these techniques you might say well i'm just offering it for what i think works and then the person who's buying you know the purchaser or the the services or whatever um might not know to do their homework on this specific and where have you seen that played out maybe something that was marketed for one thing and it was so not that thing I think coming back to this alternative neurotherapy stuff, so some of my work now looks at how neurotherapies are promoted, who's promoting them, what the qualifications of those people are to promote them, and what the evidence is for those. And so we're not doing like a focus on each individual person, but we've done studies of the websites of people who are promoting uh, neurostimulation technologies for off-label indications, so four indications for which these devices and techniques were not initially. What personal experiences have you had that's helped shape your ethical compass, if you will? We think of ethics as a very personal thing, right? At the same time, like if you talk to somebody about ethics, it's, it's something that feels very personal. But I think in bioethics, writ large, it feels like it's, it's a lot about philosophy and less about the personal experience and more like this um, academic endeavor that's less shaped by like what I think is right and wrong. I can answer this in a different way, which is that the thing that's helped me the most in thinking through ethical questions, especially when they come up in certain areas of science, is really having a firm understanding of the science itself. That helps clarify what I think in terms of ethical and social implications, like where this is going. Yeah. So it's not a personal answer. <laughs> but when I think of something that's like really helped what guides my thinking, it starts with a grounded understanding of the science and then from there thinking about the ethics and then they're thinking about the law. Yeah, I think this is the perfect time in our history to have people like you keeping an eye out on all of this because there's so much innovation. And with that, there's always going to be opinion. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your experiences. It really means a lot, especially to us. We're really curious. We were like jammering all before you got here like, <laughs> yeah. trying to figure it all out. Totally. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Wow, that was really interesting. Do-it-yourself medicine and citizen science. Yeah, and some of the the, the new thoughts around, like, you know, laws. And yeah. I love how careful she was. <laughs> she was like, she was. you know, I can't say what's right, what's wrong. Right. A lot of this stuff is so new. We're all figuring it out. Yeah, right on. And also you could tell that she's, like, really invested and it's such a she's a great person to have around at this time of innovation. And I really appreciate her not like taking away from the people online figuring out science and jumping into it on the Reddits and on those little message boards. Let's switch gears here and bring out our last guest for this episode. You know her, you love her, you learn from her, you live with her, and you might laugh with her. Okay? Please welcome the chief scientist of the Franklin Institute, Jayatri Das, for our recurring segment called Body of Knowledge, where we discuss our episode topic in a more open forum discussion. 
we're going to be asking questions, talking about ideas, putting our curiosities out into the world. Jay Autry, hi. Hi, Angelica. <laughs> hi, Jay. Hey. <laughs> so on this episode, we spoke about neuroethics. A lot of going on under that term. What, uh, what, what does that make you think of? You know, it's really interesting because when you start thinking about the brain and technology and medicine, there are some questions that start to arise that are different because it kind of gets to the heart of who we are. You know, the brain is the embodiment of us as an individuals, right? And so when you start thinking about the science around the brain and what that means, there are questions that scientists and ethicists are asking that need to shape how the science moves forward. Right. Right. And so when I think about it, there are the questions that scientists want answers to. <laughs> and then there are the questions that scientists can't answer because they're really about our human values. That's a big question. I think about ethics. That's the part of the word that kind of jumps out to me. What's right or wrong? And as we try to advance our understanding of science and human activity and our brain and try to help with Alzheimer's or other brain limitations, if you will, where should we stop and where should we progress? That's kind of what jumps out to me when I when I see uh, neuroethics. I think of like neuroethics being like the real housewives of science, you know, it's like it's, dr <laughs> <laughs> it's drama. Like this is where the drama lies is like how far is too far? What is um, like Adderall? Like, is it fair? There's all these questions. Are these things fair? Like and I'm, then you, you can spiral it out. Like is makeup fair? Is getting a blow dryer fair? Like what what is these ethical questions applying them to Science is, is really inherently dramatic. And of course, that's fun for us to talk about yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Love think it. about. But of course, then there's medicine and, and much deeper subjects, okay? But also your everyday <laughs> things, okay? Like, what's an advantage, you know, uh, a gorgeous, expensive pen versus a, a really basic one from CVS? It's like, what kind of experience are you having? You know, this is <laughs> this is science. I also had like some pretty basic examples in my brain, like monster energy drinks. Like, is, is that like something that enhances or limits or gives you an advantage or anything like that? Uh, totally. Probably not. But. So you guys kind of hit the nail on the head, right? Of, in terms of taking ethics and then pushing into this neuroscience aspect of it, right? Because like we think of ethics as like what's right and what's wrong. And, and that's true for a lot of things in science. But I think where neuroethics is kind of special is that are those questions different when you're talking about the brain? And this is a question that like neuroethicists ask themselves too. <laughs> like, are good. we just like, you know, navel gazing or is there something that's actually different when we're talking about the brain? Right. And one of the cool projects that I work on is working with kind of an international consortium of neuroethicists who are trying to think about how do we do this in a way that brings different voices to the table and is kind of proactive. So we're not, you know, trying to figure this out after the science is already out there. So there's lots of people who are really interested in figuring out, you know, what are the questions to ask? And then what are the answers to those questions and how do we find them out? Are there any kind of like dangerous science practices in terms of exploring the brain? It's like, hey, don't explore this part of the brain because this is, I don't know, sacred or 
touchy or is there just hey everything's fair game well we've kind of learned that lesson the hard way right so (laughs) right i mean if you look through the history of neuroscience and neurosurgery like there in the not so distant past people thought that a treatment for epilepsy was just to sever the connections that connected the two halves of the brain together yeah, we shouldn't do that. Wow. <laughs> right? Wow. Uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, there are, there are lessons that we've learned, you know, as we've learned more about the brain. Um, but there's also this really interesting, you know, cultural aspect of the brain that you brought up in terms of it being sacred. Um, and that's something that I think brings a different lens to this part, you know, this type of ethics. Yeah. Is, you know, for instance, you know, in in some Asian cultures, the brain and and even thinking about, you know, how we, you know, take care of the dead of our ancestors plays a role in terms of people's willingness to donate their brains to science. Right. Wow. And we and I know that's so important uh organ Yeah. And donors. so this is this is a question that, you know, some of the you know, the Chinese and Korean scientists that I've been talking to think about a lot is that how do we encourage people to be open to the idea of, you know, donating brains because otherwise they're being left out of of the science that could potentially help us. Right. Which I totally understand. And something that came up for me is thinking like people have the, the right to be left out. And the dignity of that choice sometimes Absolutely. if they say like i'd really rather not be a part of this then they don't have to right but it's like i hear what you're saying because it's like as we progress the less you get involved you sort of do get left behind in studies as well another thing i thought of was like the concept of the hysterical woman and then like the oh, lobotomy that, yes. that they would be given right or like our you know culturally schizophrenia um you know certain cultures i know with like um in per- I have friends that went to Peru and did ayahuasca and learned about the, the science of like the the shaman in, in the rainforest, right? And how those people, some if they were here, would not be treated with the respect that they're treated there right. or asked, you know, for advice or some sort of like sacred information, you know? So it's just really the neuroethics here in our country compared culturally to other countries is fascinating. That aspect of like that stigma around mental health and mental illness is one of the big questions that scientists are thinking about is that if we figure out kind of a biological basis for mental illness, for instance, like how does that affect the social stigma? Does it make it better? Because then we kind of think about mental illness as just another type of physical illness Mm. or, you know, does it categorize people even further? Okay, as always, we're gonna finish off our body of knowledge by seeing what other people are curious about when it comes to neuroethics. So we turn to the internet, our beloved friend and worst enemy, to see what people are talking about online. Ever heard of it? So for this part, we're gonna read off the most popular Google searches surrounding neuroethics, and we're gonna talk about them. As it relates to neuroethics, a question is, what does it mean to be human? And I know that's a very big question. (laughs) It is. Let me throw a question back to you guys. Say that you had a robot and you were adding characteristics to it to make it human. Okay. What would you add? Empathy. Yeah. Honestly, humans, shame. Healthy sense of shame, but also a very unhealthy sense of shame. That's what humans are carrying around. (laughs) Okay. People, people, shame. I love the way you think. (laughs) 
I love it. <laughs> but shame is human and it informs our decisions. I think it's what animals don't have. You know what I'm saying? Like they're not thinking around it over and over, which is going back to the looping, which is going back to what everyone's trying to do with like a lot of medications and meditation is like, how do I stop this rumination? So I feel like that's very human. Yeah, I love that. So I, I love the fact that both of you kind of, maybe you took it kind of for granted that like all of these like sensory functions, like being able to just like collect information about the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's all a given. A robot can do that, but that doesn't make us human, right? right? It's jumping to that higher level. Yeah, 100%. I know, um, I think the, the through line between both of our answers, Angelica, is uh, connection. Right. Connecting because I said empathy as a way to hopefully have this hypothetical robot connect to this, the spaces and the things around them in, in ways in which that would be healthy, productive, and they can live on in a, in a happy, functioning way. And I'd imagine shame kind of holds that function. From my experience, shame is kind of like that fear that will be disconnected from the community. And right. So, you know, if I'm ashamed that I did something, you know, uh, I'm, I'm ashamed or scared that that thing that I did will disconnect me from the larger group and that I'll be outcasted. And, you know, as humans, we want to be a part of a group and social and a part of a community. I, in my right. mind, that's what it means to be human. Well, let me flip the question on you now. OK. Say you have a human and they lose their shame, sense of shame or sense of empathy. Are they still human? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Um, I mean, they might be in a human body. All right. But I think that and I think there's a negative connotation to the word shame. I just want to be really clear. I think that there's a healthy sense of shame that keeps us from walking around naked and upsetting everyone around us or throwing things around and doing crazy things. Right. Like we have a we live in a society. OK, so not that that has its own uh, things, you know, people have to say about that. Right. But anyway, my point is, if you took away empathy and shame or any of these kinds of um, relating qualities, I do think it would make a robot and not a human. But personally, I don't want my technology personally having empathy towards me. I'm like, don't don't talk to me too much. Let me tell you what to do and then leave me alone. I don't want it coming to uh, comfort me. <laughs> it's a robot. I'm a human being. Know your place. That's just what I think. But we are talking about ethics. <laughs> right. Well, I was going to answer the question to say, I think if you took those things away from a human, I, I would my instincts would be like, yes, they're still human. One of the interesting new developments in neuroscience that's really you know, asking this question is the fact that we can now take human brain cells and start to grow them in a dish. These are called brain organoids, and they're useful for all sorts of reasons in terms of modeling what's happening in the brain and modeling potentially different diseases and things like that. But kind of at what point do, does this clump of cells in a dish become conscious? Like, when does it become human? And we don't really have a good definition for that. Yeah, that's scary. That is scary. <laughs> <laughs> so we want to know what people are asking about being a human being. Interesting. And what came up? So the first one that came up was humans are warm blooded. Really? <laughs> that's number one of all the things? <laughs> wow, that, that's kind of boring. <laughs> Am I ignorant in like not knowing that answer? I think the answer is yes. Humans are warm-blooded, okay, but great, like, great, great. so are like every other mammal. Right. <laughs> this is true. make us special. Yeah. All right, let, let, let's see if there's some more Keep it going. Stuff. Keep All it right. going. Yeah, what, what's that? Humans are social creatures. Interesting. Okay, so that starts to touch on some of these aspects of being connected that make us human. Cool, cool. I love this next one. You want to go for it? Sure. Humans are evil by nature. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Neuroethics. Beyond, yes. Now that's getting to some judgment there. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, evil. What's evil? What's good? Right. I mean, this is the oldest story in the book, the oldest book, okay? Theoretically, the freaking Bible. Okay, so if we really want to go there today, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> <laughs> and the next one is uh, humans are omnivores. Okay, so that, you know, so this, I think, you know, this warm-blooded, the omnivores, I think those are good examples of how we can think about the biological aspects of humans that don't really get us into neuroethics, right? There's nothing that pushes us into questions of like identity about being an omnivore. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, well, um, okay, maybe I take that back as I start thinking about what it means in terms of how we interact with other animals. Right. So, okay, I, I just take all of that back. Okay. Right? <laughs> You're asking questions. Yeah. Wait, omnivore is both eating meat and vegetables, right? Yes. It, okay. Yeah. yeah, they are. Okay. This is what people are asking, but the truth is, yes, they are. They eat vegetables and meat generally. Yeah. So humans, humans, <laughs> you know, are omnivores, but the, but then that gets into starting to act, act um, starting to get into the different choices that people make. Just because we can digest both meat and vegetables doesn't mean that all people choose to. Right. Right. And then yes. that snowballs into questions about, you know, how do we use animals for research? Absolutely. Um, and that is a huge point of contention very, in very neuroethics huge. right yes. now, right? Yes. Because what can we learn from mice and rats and what benefit does that bring us? And what happens when we start experimenting on like other primates? Right. True. You want to go for the last one? Humans are gods. Ooh, that's deep. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I guess people go to Google for really deep things. <laughs> that is true. So, But what does that mean to you guys when you think about saying humans are gods? You know, obviously my brain kind of rejects it when it just hits my ear. However, I do have an understanding, a very basic understanding that we're made of stardust. And so we're made up of the universe and the different things that are floating around and I don't know, to me that strikes me as godly, godlike or made up yeah. of the same elements. Um, so maybe we have a piece of God in us. Uh, that is, I think, something outside of the a podcast about science. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, it strikes me as no. But as I sit and, and ask questions and, and, and remain a little bit more curious and open about it, I'm like, well, we are made of stardust and, you know, the universe is pretty big and godlike and so on and so forth. And that's where I trail off. Thanks so much, Shayatri, and thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of So Curious. This podcast is part of the Franklin Institute. The Franklin Institute is a science museum located in Philadelphia. The Franklin Institute's mission is to inspire a passion for learning about science and technology. For more information on everything about the Franklin Institute, visit fi.edu. This podcast is produced by Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast network for businesses looking to develop their own branded podcast content. Check them out at radiokismet.com. There's a lot of people who make this podcast happen. Thanks to the producers, Joy Montefusco and Jayatri Das. Our managing producer, Emily Cherish. Our operations head, Christopher Plant. Our associate producer, Liliana Green. Our audio team, Christian Cedarlund, Goldie Bingley, Lauren DeLuca, and Brad Florent. Our development producer, Opeola Bucola. Our science writer, Kira Veyette. And our graphic designer, Emma Sager. See you next week. 